What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Masters of Community podcast. My name is David Spinks, founder of CMX and VP of Community at Bevy. Each week, I bring you an expert who will help you take your community to the next level. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey, everyone. I just want to give you a quick heads up that my new book, The Business of Belonging, How to Make Community Your Competitive Advantage, is now available anywhere where you can buy books on Amazon and any bookstore. It is the complete collection of everything I've learned from the last 13 years and how to build community for your business and all of the frameworks and models that the CMX team has developed to teach businesses how to do this work. It's all in here. I really appreciate all your support. You can go and order it now. Welcome back to Masters of Community, everyone. We're going to kick off again by reading out one of the reviews that you all posted on Apple Podcasts. This one's from Amber Peoples saying, Embracing community. After two decades of building IRL in real life communities has pointed toward the world of online communities. I'm so grateful that David and the team at CMX were my intro. The depth of heart and thought is matched by the practices of details and ROI. Master of Community takes this blend another step forward. I love these first episodes and eagerly await what is to come. Really appreciate the review, Amber. Thanks to everyone who's posting reviews of the podcast. It's a huge help for getting this show out to more people. And we have an amazing guest today with Wes Ko, a good friend of mine who is the co-founder of Maven, which is a platform that powers cohort-based courses. So cohort-based courses are educational programs that people go through together in a cohort. So you could think about a lot of the online courses that exist today on things like Udemy, or Coursera, they're on demand. They're pre-recorded videos that you can watch anytime. But the completion rate of those programs is pretty low and people don't get to build community in a strong way when everyone's just kind of taking it on their own time. So this concept of cohort-based courses is becoming really powerful and Maven is the leading platform to power these kinds of programs. I had the opportunity to participate in the cohort-based course, teaching you how to build a cohort-based course that Wes ran. And it was by far the best course I've ever participated in. It was extremely detailed, extremely practical, and helped us build much better education at CMX. And in this interview, she shares the process for launching a cohort-based course. We talk about specifically how to design the constraints for, you know, are you going to do more on-demand or more live courses? Is it going to be coach-driven? Or are you going to teach everything? How long is a course? How much should you charge for it? We also talk about how to build community within your course. We talk about how to run breakouts to make them more impactful and give people really clear instructions on how to participate in breakouts. Just so much that you'll learn from this, whether you are a community builder who wants to add a course to your community programming or you're a creator who wants to sell a course. There's lots in here that you're going to learn. Let's dive in. Bless, welcome to the show. Hey, Sphinx. How's it going? It's going well. That's right. You got permission to call me Sphinx a long time ago. Very honored. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we've known each other for some time now. And I had the privilege of being in your Maven course on how to launch cohort-based courses. So I know your work really well. People who are listening don't know so much yet. So why don't we just kick off with could you share your background, how you worked with the Alt-MBA, with Seth Godin in the past, and all the things that you're doing with Maven today? Yeah, for sure. 
I'm Wes Kao. I'm co-founder of Maven. And we're a platform that makes it really easy for creators to build, host, and run their cohort-based courses. So the idea of a cohort-based course is still relatively new for a lot of people. And so, you know, defining it, I think, up front can be helpful. So usually we think of online courses. A lot of us, our mind immediately goes to Udemy courses or Teachable, Skillshare, LinkedIn Learning, where it's basically a series of videos that you watch by yourself. There's no accountability, there's no community, and it's really hard to keep yourself motivated, which is why the completion rates are so low. Six to 10% of people actually finish the courses that they sign up for. And a recent MIT study said that that number might be as low as 3% completion. Mm. So on the flip side, court-based courses are completely different. They have a set start and end date. So the course might be three days, one week, three weeks, six weeks, but you're doing the course during a period of time with a group of other people, i.e. your cohort, where you're learning with fellow designers or fellow marketers or fellow community managers or fellow people who are you know interested in crypto or product managers. So it's much more engaging. It's much more about active hands-on learning and active doing. So learning as doing as opposed to just passive content consumption. And so this whole idea for court-based courses really came about in 2014-2015 when Seth Godin and I created the Alt-MBA. The Alt-MBA was one of the first mainstream court-based courses. It was one month, so four weeks, with 100 to 120 students from all around the world, but really started as an experiment. When I first joined Seth, I moved from SF to New York on a whim for this six-month contract as a project to help him figure out what he should do next. And at that time, he had just sold off his last company that he had worked on for almost a decade and wanted to figure out what should my next big project be. So we looked at a bunch of ideas. We had a, a board with dozens and dozens of colorful index cards pinned up with ideas ranging from starting an artisanal bean-to-bar chocolate company, because Seth is really into chocolate, to a mobile gaming app, to creating an ad agency that would promote good causes that usually fell into the tragedy of commons. So we looked at a whole bunch of different ideas. And the idea that we honed in on centered around education and content, just looking at Seth's track record and background and impact that he's made teaching his readers, teaching both change agents in corporations and also freelancers, innovators, creators. He's really shaped the mindset of so many people around shipping, about creativity, about art, about innovation. And we thought, okay, what if we went back to this value prop? And as we started thinking about it, we realized that there were a couple problems. One was people don't read as much as they used to anymore. There's a wild stat about how few books people read, the average person reads these days, with attention spans getting slower, more people getting distracted with the 50 browser tabs you have open, social, you know, constantly multitasking. So that was one big problem. And the second was that with online learning with videos, which on the surface seem more interactive, let's say, than, you know, reading a book by yourself, the completion rates were super low. And so we started kicking around some ideas and thought, what if online learning in its current state as video courses wasn't the end-all be-all of what online learning could be? What if we flipped the script on what learning online could look like and made it a lot more interactive and took the best parts of what in-person learning has? 
the community, the magic that you feel when you're breathing the same air, when you're in the same room as people who are equally excited to learn, the conversations that you have, the debates, the discussions, the critique, being able to challenge each other's ideas and riff and improve your own thinking because you are talking these ideas out with the group of other people. So that really came together to become the Alt MBA. Mm -hmm. And as I said earlier, it was a big experiment in the beginning because at the time this was completely new and we had no idea if this was going to work, bringing a bunch of strangers on the internet together. Zoom was just starting to become popular. Slack was still this new thing. I remember creating documentation on how to use Slack with screenshots and arrows. And you know now obviously Slack has all these things and I could just link people there. But back then it was like I was creating Slack documentation and tutorials. But after running the first workshop in May, May slash June 2015, we knew we had stumbled upon something really, really incredible. The first day that we went live, students were connecting with each other in channels that they were creating on their own. They were DMing each other. They were meeting offline. They were creating their own groups. Just the amount of community that happened was just incredible. So I stayed for three years building out and growing the Alt MBA from this one initial first cohort, 100 students, to thousands of students in 45 countries, 500 cities all around the world, and really building it out with community being being at its core. And now with Maven, we're, we're bringing this idea of cohort-based courses to more creators in different verticals, different industries. You know, what we saw work at the Alt-MBA works for creators and professionals and experts in a bunch of other categories. And so offering this course format and making it really easy is something that, that I think is really, really exciting. That's awesome. And I think there's two elements of the role of cohort-based courses I want to talk to you about today when it comes to community. One of them is where community plays a role in education. So that's the thing that cohort-based courses have such an advantage over on-demand courses because people are going through it together. It results in a much more engaged community. And then the other part is how can these kinds of courses be used within existing communities, right? So a lot of the people here who are building community, who are listening to the show, I think we're always as community builders thinking about how do we bring education to our community? And that shows up in documentation, in articles, in videos, in potentially courses. And I think building out cohort-based courses may actually be one of the greatest community building tools that community professionals have. I don't see used that much, right? Like I don't see community managers or community teams creating educational programs in that way. And like shared educational experiences seems like such a powerful way to bring people together rather than just loose conversations in a forum. Yeah, absolutely. I think the interesting thing about core-based courses and the way that community plays a role is that in core-based courses, learning is first and community is a close second. And I think the reason that's important is because a lot of times community, as you just said, is is loose conversations. It's hanging out with friends. It's having kind of a shared interest in a certain topic. So it could be meetup groups, networking, you know, fellowships, hanging out. But there's not necessarily a defined outcome that needs to happen in a set period of time with that community. Mm. It's more of this ongoing thing that you're giving back to and you're getting value from. But with an educational experience, especially something that's paid, one thing for community organizers to think about is 
the expectations of your participants are going to be different when there is a set period of time and when when it is it is paid. So I think that's one big thing. One other thing about that is that real learning a lot of times is an uncomfortable experience. It makes us feel vulnerable that we don't know how to do this thing that we are learning how to do. And sometimes you read an article, you're like, okay, this all makes sense. I'm going to go implement this now. And you try it and it doesn't work. Like it worked so beautifully when the instructor was explaining it or the article was explaining it. But you go and try it and you realize that your skill level isn't where you want it to be. Or you don't even know what you don't know. You can't even diagnose what's wrong with the attempt that you just made, whether it's designing a flyer or writing a great essay or writing a great tweet thread, right? Whatever it is that you're learning, the reason you're learning it is because there's a skills gap. So I think the implication here with community is that sometimes it can bring out defensiveness in participants and students. Mm. This vulnerability, this, I don't know how to do this thing can sometimes make people feel uncomfortable. So as a community organizer, it's this other level to think about where you're balancing what you're teaching your students so that it's not too easy, not too hard. Because if it's too easy, it's like, oh, like, what am I here for? What am I paying for? If it's too hard, it's like, I'm just frustrated and overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. So it's bringing people together, making sure that your students are contributing to the community, supporting each other, learning from each other, while also acknowledging that there's two weeks or three weeks or three days, whatever time it is that we have together for us to get a lot done. So we're balancing that social aspect with the impact Mm. so that at the end of that experience, your students, your participants will leave saying, yeah, that was totally worth it. And I want to recommend this to my friends to do. And if I had the chance, I would do it again. Mm. I love that. There's so many interesting elements of cohort-based courses that leads to really engaged communities. What I heard you say was like the shared struggle is one big one, right? Like this is something that you hear a lot in community research and community psychology is when people go through a shared struggle, whether it's like people who went through experiences in war before or they go through really hard training programs or something like that. When they go through that struggle, it bonds them together. And so in a way, by creating a difficult enough cohort-based course, you're creating a healthy struggle for your community members that will actually bond them together. It's also the shared goal of trying to accomplish something or learn something. I know like in the course that I went through that you taught, it was like by the end, everyone had to create a course. And so there was like this tangible outcome that everyone was working toward as well which creates a shared sense of community. And there's the time-based element of you're meeting regularly and there's going to be this end date that you're working toward that brings a lot of strong bonds between members. So it makes sense that if you think about these kinds of programs, whether they're cohort-based courses or accelerator programs for startups, going to college, like all of these things that have these elements are some of the strongest communities in the world because it has those elements. So what would you say are the most important things that go into making a cohort-based course successful? And like one specific thing I'm curious about is the how to manage the time commitment as a community leader. Part of the draw of doing on-demand courses is that you create it once and then they kind of run on their own. So they're much easier to scale cohort-based courses do take a lot of time and energy to create and manage 
And every time you run the course, obviously, that's a big investment. So for someone who's thinking about building out a cohort-based course, what should they be thinking about to make it really successful and make it something that they can do at scale sustainably? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great question. I think one thing to acknowledge is that there are trade-offs with every type of digital product that you make. So with Evergreen on-demand course, you put a lot of effort up front into filming, recording, scripting, and producing these videos, and then you hit publish, and then students can sign up on their own without much of your involvement. You do still have to market the course ongoing to make sure there's students that are signing up, but otherwise that effort from the content creation part is very low once you make the course. The problem with, or the downside rather, is you need volume usually to make a good living from selling your evergreen course. So most courses on Udemy are 10 to $20. Some are $50. Some can go as high as $100. But they're usually in the $15, $20 range. Whereas with cohort-based courses, yes, they take more time to run because there's that real-time component that makes them so much more engaging. But that's also the reason why your students are willing to pay more. So students on average are paying $500 per student Mm -hmm. for core-based courses, up to $5,000 per student, depending on willingness to pay for a topic, who that creator is, who their audience is. But that $500 to, I'd say, $1,500 per student is really common with what we've seen on Maven courses. So you're kind of trading off the scale. You get scale with MOOCs without much involvement, but you are charging less. Whereas with core-based courses, if you're teaching twice a year, four times a year, a lot of creators feel like, hey, that's worth it. If I'm blocking off a couple weeks, a couple times a year, and I'm able to make $100,000 per cohort, which is what we've seen over a dozen instructors be able to do in their first cohort alone, that helps to make up for the time that's invested in running that course. So that's one thing to think about is there's pros and cons with whichever type of course you want to launch. Yeah. I think the second thing to think about is you don't have to do all of the community alone. So I think one thing with creators is usually they're entrepreneurial, they're resourceful, they're pretty scrappy. And so they've you get really far doing a lot by yourself. But I think with the core-based course, once you realize that you don't have to do it all yourself, that's where the skies part and new opportunities open up. So the idea of having a course manager or coaches, TAs, alumni mentors. So they come in, these additional staff members come with with different names. Rite of Passage, David Pearl's course, he calls them alumni mentors. Section four, Professor Galloway's course, they call them TAs. Alt-MBA calls them coaches. So these are basically staff members who are often alumni from your course, who are really passionate about the experience that they had. They want to give back. They want to be involved in creating that magical experience that they felt for the next generation of students. And having these coaches, TAs, involved in engaging with students, in leading breakout discussions, in leading small group discussions, in connecting students who should meet each other, who might otherwise not know that, hey, Joe, you should meet Jane, or Sam, you should meet Susie. You know, you guys both talk about this thing, or you both work on that thing. Having these different coaches and TAs really helps to create the the infrastructure and the sandbox where this group of students that you've brought together can really connect. Yeah. So that's the second thing. And I think the third thing is related to the idea that so many creators are used to doing things themselves, letting go a little bit and realizing that you as the instructor don't have to be the center of the community. I think that's a really 
big shift. That's kind of a mental, I was going to say mind fuck. I don't know if I can say this on this podcast, but you can. <laughs> I can. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's kind of a mind fuck because there's a, a profanity safe podcast. Nice. Okay. Okay. Great. So you as an instructor, I think there's a little bit of ego tied up in like these people are here because they want to learn from me. My content is amazing. My community is amazing. Yeah. And that's all true. That's all true. And your students and participants will get more from this experience if you allow them to connect with each other without you needing to be the center of that. So I think that's a really big thing that is a shift for instructors as they run their core-based course, because it's kind of acknowledging that you letting go of the reins a little bit actually results in better outcomes, more connections, deeper bonds and relationships amongst your students. Mm. I love it. Yeah, there's a lot of parallels there with concepts and community again. One being that the only way to truly scale community is to give up control, something we talk about a lot on this podcast. Mm. And so the idea of empowering moderators, volunteer event organizers, volunteer content creators, just empowering members of the community to take on these roles is the only way to scale. And so similarly in cohort-based courses, empowering people to be coaches, to be course facilitators, to be content creators even for the course is a big way to be able to scale this. Of course, if you're the community builder, you may not even be the expert teaching the course. You can find members of the community who are the experts and work with them to develop the course and make them into the lead instructors as well. Mm -hmm. And what you described about not making it all about you, if you make it all about you, you're essentially building an audience because people are there to follow you. It becomes a community when you empower people to help each other. So same idea there, like make it less about you and make it more about the content and the people supporting each other. So that that all resonates. I'm curious, I know Maven specifically works with a whole lot of creators and indie community builders. Are you seeing brands or like brand community managers creating cohort-based courses as well? which could be for things like teaching people how to use their product, or it could still be like more career and educationally focused beyond the product. But are you seeing companies launch courses like this? I haven't seen too many companies. We have a few organizations who are creating courses. So MIT Media Lab is piloting doing a course. They just finished their first cohort and are figuring out their second cohort right. and are thinking about potentially bringing on other Media Lab projects and turning them into courses. Yeah, I haven't seen too many brands create core-based courses, but I think it's totally on the table and on the horizon. Seems like a huge opportunity, honestly. Oh, yeah, totally. I think creating a community around your product, around your tool, around your app, bringing people together who, are, who have that as a commonality, that they love your product, and bringing them together to be able to talk about their struggles or challenges. I think there are some... Off the top of my head, some companies that are great at community building. So Buffer, I think, is a great example. Sure. So I can totally see a Buffer course, right. for example, right? With social media managers bringing people together. Like, let's talk about what, you know our content calendars and trends that we're seeing and ways to yeah. hack the algorithm or whatever. Like, I can totally see that being really interesting. And it doesn't have to be six-week-long social media course. It can be a three-day experience. It can be... right. You can make them short. A one-week thing. It could even be a day-long thing. Right. But the thing that I see is different between... The difference between a core-based course versus an event 
Because I think that comes up as a question. It's like when your courses get shorter, what differentiates a course from a paid webinar? Mm -hmm. You really don't want to skew into that paid webinar territory because that's usually not meant as a compliment if your students say it feels like a paid webinar. Sure. So, you know, I can imagine these branded courses being something where, A, there's a lot of interactivity. So usually in webinars, you're just watching someone speak. It's basically a bunch of guest speakers, right? Especially now on more and more events are online and it just feels like someone talking at you still. Yeah. So with the course, if there's interactivity and you're bringing the community members together, let's say buffer social media managers, you're giving them a chance to connect in small groups. You're giving them a prompt. You might give them a project that they're working on together. Right. Discussion groups, breakouts, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Debating, discussing, critiquing each other's work, getting feedback on stuff that they need another pair of eyes on. I think that's super valuable because in at least a lot of startups, you're sometimes the only person doing that job. Right. You might be the only person handling social or the only person handling marketing or the only person handling customer success. So you don't have a bunch of people that you can easily bounce ideas with who have all the context of what your role entails. So a company bringing together a bunch of social media managers or a bunch of VPs in product or, or whatever else is an amazing chance to to get the community together and strengthen their customers' bonds with their product too. Totally. Yeah, it seems like a big opportunity. And it I wouldn't even think of it like a webinar because there's so many differences, right? Like even just having a clear curriculum exactly. over time and having a fixed set of students who are participating and a cohort-based course, even if it is just three days, to me, feels very different than, than a webinar. But it, yeah, it seems like an obvious win. Like imagine, yeah, Buffer's a good one. Imagine if Notion had a week-long cohort-based course yeah. that they run once a month and everyone can come and learn how to use Notion better or really complex platforms like Marketo or Salesforce, right? Like mm-hmm. having cohort-based courses to teach people how to use a product or how to just like grow in their career. It's such a great community building tool. It's a huge value add to the product. It makes a lot of sense. So... I expect that we'll see more companies building out education programs like this. And so let's get a little more practical now. So if I'm a community builder, I'm a creator, I'm a business, and I want to start building my cohort-based course out, what does that process look like? And I'll caveat that with, I went through your course. This was, uh, I think it was eight weeks, super in-depth. It was one of the most like practical, detailed courses ever. And so we could talk about this for literally eight weeks, but <laughs> what is like the, let's see if we could get like the crash course highlights version of what does the process look like for launching and creating a great cohort based course? Yeah, for sure. The Maven course accelerator was six weeks. Six weeks. When you went through it. And now it we've, felt like eight weeks. We've trimmed it to three weeks. <laughs> wow. So <laughs> that's right. Yes. Based on your feedback and the feedback of a couple others. So we've made it tighter. But yes, so high level, there's a couple key things you want to think about for what this process looks like. First thing is thinking about course market fit. And that means Mm. picking a topic and finding the fit of why you are the right person to be teaching this topic, why this topic is a juicy, expensive, thorny problem that your audience, that your students will be willing to pay for to learn how to fix in their lives and in their businesses. Thinking about why now for that student and thinking about the market demand for a topic like this. So the course market fit aspect is is what we always start with because you want to make sure that 
there's enough demand for the topic that you want to teach right. and that it's an exciting topic that you are committed to and excited to work on for the long haul. You could, there might be some topics where there's a lot of interest in it. People ask you the same questions over and over. But if you're not excited to answer those questions, you shouldn't create a course on that. Right. If people are constantly asking you, hey, Sarah, and this is one of our instructors, Sarah Sodine Parr, who is a UX researcher designer at Airbnb, people are always asking her, I'm a founder. How do I make sure I build something people want? Or how do I get at the truth of right. customer interviews? Because people will say certain things and then we'll do it and then like, we'll give it to them and they actually won't want it. Mm. So she always gets a set of three to five-ish questions. So her course covers this. Right. It's about how to build products that people want from day one and really getting at the heart of understanding your customers. Love it. So that's the first thing to start with. Usually as a creator, if you have a newsletter, a podcast, if you have an event series, you've been blogging, you've been tweeting you probably have a certain realm of topics already that you are used to talking about. So you have a leg up in that, you know, your topic is working remotely or it might be marketing, positioning, branding, right? So you kind of have a set of topics and then it's about narrowing in on what target student do you want to really address? Mm -hmm. Most of us have multiple courses in us. So don't try to cram it all into a single course. Make it a tight course where a specific kind of student is really eager to learn this particular topic from you. Right. So that's one, figuring out the positioning, course market fit. The second part is once you've done that, you want to flesh out your curriculum. You want to think about what order of operations makes sense to teach this topic. People should learn this thing first in order to understand this thing, in order to build onto this thing, right? So roughly getting your bearings on if you were, let's say, explaining this to a friend, how would you explain this so that they would know how to do it? Mm -hmm. And how would you watch over their shoulder as they're trying it out mm -hmm. so that they have a chance to practice. So that aspect of designing your curriculum and fleshing out what are the frameworks you might want to teach, what are the exercises, breakouts, and discussions that you might want the group to have, that's part two. And then part three is thinking about your sales and marketing funnel. So what does your top of funnel look like? How do people hear about your course? Is it through your newsletter? Is it through Twitter? Is it through tapping into IRL connections that you have? Is it showing up in certain communities that already exist? So there's a lot of ways that you can show up and have people hear more about your course. I think one question that I get a lot is, you know, if I don't have a small audience and I don't have a lot of Twitter followers or my newsletter subscriber list is still small, what do I do? One of our instructors, Shivani Berry, is a great example of this. She has a leadership and management course for women. And she was a product manager at Intercom before deciding to go out on her own to start teaching her core-based course. And because she was in-house as an operator, she didn't really spend any time really building kind of her outward presence. So when she decided to start teaching, she really had no list of any kind on, on any platform. But she started with 10, 15 students, grew it to 25 to 30 in her next cohort a couple months later. A couple months later, she had 40 to 50 students. A couple months later, she had 80 to 90. And in her upcoming cohort, she has over 100, 120 students. Wow. So she gradually and steadily grew one cohort to the other, one cohort to the next. And the way that she did that was by showing up in communities that already existed mm -hmm. that would be glad to realize that her course now exists. Mm -hmm. So she would show up in Alpha, Y Combinator's mm -hmm. community for women. She would show up in women product manager type communities. She would 
show up in employee resource groups, ERGs at bigger companies like Amazon or Deloitte, and she would give a talk that would be microcosm of what her course would look like. And, you know, inevitably people would be like, oh, this is really great. Like, I really liked learning about how to advocate for myself or dealing with difficult personalities or whatever else. And she would get signups after her presentation. So this idea of, you know, not trying to start from scratch, but rather showing up in existing groups where people are already congregating, people are already talking about the topic that you plug into really easily. That's kind of the third piece with thinking about your sales and marketing funnel, thinking about where can you show up to, to let people know about your course. And then, and the other piece of that too, is that she started, Shivani started building her own list, right? So it's a great thing to do to, to get started plugging into different communities, but you also want to start building your own. So creating an alumni group for all the women who have graduated from her course, encouraging them to right. refer other people in their own companies that might like her course. Right. And from that, she's gotten five, 10 students from a single company because one person from that company really loved their experience and could speak to it firsthand and say that this was valuable to me. I think you all should do it which is so much more powerful than Shivani, who in their eyes is a salesperson who obviously has skin in the game, saying like, oh, take my course, take my course, take my course. So I love how a lot of our instructors, Shivani being a great example, use that community-driven approach even in their sales and marketing efforts. Totally. Yeah, your past students are the best advocates for your course. All right, so I want to hone in on that, that middle piece of creating the course and creating the curriculum one thing that really stood out for me from the course that I've always kept in my ha- in my mind is this one slide that you shared that essentially had all of these different criteria for what could kind of structure the course and what are the constraints. And they were like levers that you can slide to the left or right to say things like, is it all going to be live videos or on-demand videos that we release over time? Is it going to be more coach-driven or instructor-driven? And I just love that idea of creating these constraints to help you figure out what the format is because there's actually like a whole range of different ways that a cohort-based course can look. It's not all going to look like the same length of time, the same structure, the same format. Could you speak to what just some of those levers are and the criteria that they could think about for structuring their course? Yeah, definitely. I have an in-depth article on this called The Course Mechanics Canvas, and it's 12 levers that go in-depth into what to think about with examples of courses that are on one side of that spectrum versus the other. So length, for example, on the shorter side, you have courses that are four hours long. I took a Nas Academy course that was fantastic that was four hours long, one day. Hmm. And then you have courses that are maybe three days long, like Sawhill Bloom and Julian Shapiro's course on audience building was three days long. And then on the far end of the other spectrum, you have courses that are six to eight weeks long. Mm -hmm. David Perl's Rite of Passage, Tiago Forte's Build a Second Brain, Susie Batiz's Alive OS course. Susie Batiz was the founder and CEO of Poopery. She was one of my clients. Mm. Uh, Actually, all three of them were clients. And so those are examples of longer courses. And you have some courses in the middle, like the Alt-MBA being at four weeks, or Sean Perry's Power Writing course being at two weeks or Lenny Richitsky's product management course being three weeks. So you have this whole spectrum and you as a creator get to decide where on that spectrum do I want to be? So the article also goes goes deeper into levers that are sometimes bundled. So it's not each lever independently, looking at price, length, number of students in your cohort, coaches or no coaches. All of these actually are very intertwined. 
And so the article kind of goes deeper into what some of these, these levers are that are bundled. But at a high level, I think realizing that court-based courses have are very, very diverse. I think that is probably the biggest takeaway that I'm constantly reminded of. In the course that you took, Maven Course Accelerator, we covered a bunch of these examples. Mm-hmm. And since then, like this was over the summer, so it's only been a couple months. Since then, we've probably doubled our number of examples with people yeah. who did the opposite of what we said, people <laughs> who like inverted this thing, like threw that out and did this instead, or took something we said and then adjusted and made something different. So I think that's one of the most exciting things about court-based courses is that there's the flexibility for you to make it what you want it to be. We have creators who run courses twice a year, spring and fall. And then we have creators like Pomp with his crypto course. He's run nine cohorts so far. (laughs) He launched in January. This was his first time teaching and he's already run nine cohorts, right? So you, if you want to run cohorts a lot, do it, right? Like that's great. If you only want, want to run it a couple times a year and it's, you know, you have other projects going on, you have your speaking engagements, you're writing a book, you're doing consulting, you have your full-time job. You can also run it just a couple times a year. Totally. We also have courses that are all over the place in terms of price. So there are some courses that are $400, $500. And then there are some courses that are $5,000, right? So depending on your audience's willingness to pay, your topic, the length of your course, what students get out of it, you might want to price that on the lower end so it's more accessible, or you might want to price it on the higher end. And pricing on the higher end often gives you more flexibility to do fewer students, let's say. Right. Right. You can do a smaller cohort knowing that each person is paying more and it's, it's worth your time and it's a great intimate experience for your students. Or you can kind of go big with the number of students. Like with section four and their sprints, their strategy sprint, product sprint, brand sprint, they have over a thousand students per cohort. Right. Each time they run the course. Yeah. And it works. Right. They have sub cohorts that they break people up into, into smaller groups. So you still have that intimate feel. But What I love about core-based courses is that it really does fit whatever preference you have as a creator. You can shape it around you. You don't have to contort yourself to like teach a bunch of people if you don't want to. If you want to keep it small, you can keep it small. If you want to do it many times a year versus few, like you can do that too. So it really is about what you as a creator want, how it's going to serve you and your business. Totally. Another thing that really stood out for me from the course that I find myself using not just in creating education, but I end up using it in like workshops, in posting in my community and asking people to participate in conversations. It's just the guidance that you provided on when you're doing breakouts and when you're essentially facilitating sessions and giving instructions to people on how to participate in those breakouts. There are a few things that you shared about how to make them very specific and intentional that I think like so few people actually put into practice. But when you do it well, it changes the experience that people have in those breakouts and those discussion groups. Can you speak a little bit about what that guidance is for how to run really great breakout groups and these kinds of experiences within the program? Yeah. I think one of the challenges with breakouts is a lot of times you'll get into a breakout with four other people. So it's, you know, it's five of us and everyone's kind of twiddling their thumbs on like, so what are we supposed to do? And you know, who's supposed to go first? And how long am I supposed to talk for? And what are we supposed to produce by the end of this? So it's really an exercise in empathy because you as a creator think that your instructions were pretty clear. And then, and then your recipients, your students read those instructions and it's still very fuzzy. So thinking about how can you be more specific with the prompt that you want people to actually work on? How can you remove some of the friction points 
that get people starting to get going. One way of doing that is saying who's going to go first. So sometimes mm-hmm. we'll say, you know, the person with alphabetical order, right? A names start first, or the person with the shortest hair goes first. And then also thinking about what's the right scope of the thing that you want people to discuss. The scope might be too big for a 10-minute breakout, right. or it might be too short. If it's too short, then people just kind of go around, they finish, and then they don't really know what to talk about. If it's too long, you know, you wanted all five people to share, and it turns out two people were able to share. So being more specific, and also testing out your breakouts. I think that's the best way to know how are people going to react. We always test our breakouts, and we're constantly improving them. So you don't need to get it perfect. Even our hit rate is like 75%, maybe max, maybe 50%, and that's after testing. So giving yourself a little bit of leeway, I think, as a creator, knowing that I want to test this out, I'm going to show this to someone who's who has no context and see if they know what to do from reading the directions alone. That's one of my favorite exercises to do. No voiceover. I'm not there whispering, here's, oh, do this instead of that, and you know, blah, blah, blah. You want your directions to be standalone. And you want your copy to be able to be everything that that person needs. So testing and thinking about these prompts as standalone, those are all good things to think about when you are creating breakouts. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. And most a lot of these breakouts are going to be without a facilitator because you might have 100 students and they're breaking out into groups of two or three. You're not going to have a facilitator for each one. So yeah, that specificity has just always stuck with me. And now every time I do a workshop, I will include like, here are the group sizes. Here's who to start with. Like, yeah, I use your ideas. I also do like, whose birthday is closest, which kind of gets everyone to share when their birthday is, which is just a fun... That's fun. Yeah. A fun thing to like make them connect to each other. Sharing examples. That's another thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you mentioned being specific, that, that came to mind too. So modeling what you want people to talk about or what you want people to share. When you're just describing via prose, that helps kind of. But when you show an example, totally, that really helps people fill in a bunch of blanks about tacit knowledge that words alone might not have been able to do, right? So 100%. you know, when you say like, oh, create a, a draft of a cold email. And then go around and critique each other's cold emails. If this is a sales course, for example, actually showing here's an example of a student's cold email, right? right? And then walking through it and then having people go and do it. It's kind of the I do, we do, you do popular pedagogy framework where I, the instructor, share something. We do is we do it together Mm -hmm. as a guided exercise. And then you do is putting you into breakouts where there's no facilitator. And now you and the group are doing this yourselves. Having that example, seeing those models makes it much easier for people to dive in right away. Yeah, I love that. I found that these things apply to even like posting and facilitating conversations in a forum or message board or Facebook group or Discord. Like so often, we just ask an open ended question and just hope that people know how to answer it in a way that's valuable and quality. But the more specific you can be, if you're like, hey, what platforms are you using to host your community, for example? All the answers are probably just going to be like one word, like I use vanilla, I use Logic, I use Discord, whatever. But like, if you actually wanted much more thoughtful responses, you would say, hey, we're going to do this thing where we all learn about the platforms we're using. Can you please share what platform you're using? When you started using it? How big is it? What are your favorite things about it? And what are your least favorite things about it? And you're like a lot more explicit about how you want people to answer that question. And all of a sudden, all the answers you'll get 
are going to be these really thoughtful answers because you were very specific about how you wanted them to respond rather than just hoping that they'll be able to give you that much detail. Yeah, I think one of the best examples of this is Slack introductions. Yeah, totally. I love when in different communities, the community manager models what an intro should look like. Because as a new person joining that community, I'm not sure, you know, should this be a a two-sentence intro? Because I don't want people to think I'm self-absorbed if I write multiple paragraphs. Right, exactly. Or is this a multiple paragraph thing that everyone is sharing that, they're using emojis, they're sharing what they're working on right now, what their favorite book is and where they grew up. And so I think the underlying idea that people want to proceed with a feeling of safety that they're not going to stick out like a sore thumb. I think that's super important. And when you model and show that, oh, here's how these intros look, I think especially if it's a new Slack or a new community, that's especially important. Once you have multiple people doing it, then the person just, the new person just looks and sees like, okay, cool. Like I get it. Like I scroll up and I see five of them. and Right. They see the example. Right. They get what it's like around here and, and what this should look like. But the more that community leaders do that, I think the easier it becomes for their participants, for their uh, community members to be able to participate feeling like, oh, I don't have to worry about being embarrassed that my thing was too long or too short or not right. 100%. Yeah. Okay. So last question before our rapid fire question round, we talked about some of these concepts already with breakouts and Slack and some of the different things that you can create. But I'm curious if you could map out what are the techniques and tactics that you've seen work really well for building community within a cohort-based course? Oh, yeah. I think one big one is leaning into debate. I think a lot of times our natural instinct is to aim for cooperation. Mm. But when everyone agrees on a thing, there's not a lot of conversation that happens. So it's good if there is a topic where it might be a little bit polarizing, that half the people might think this, half the people might think that. So I can imagine in a course that's geared towards leaders, managers, startup founders, a question about, is it better to get it done or get it right? That's an interesting question. Yeah, I can totally see people going in the, I'm in camp, get it done, or I'm in camp, get it right, and here's why, and here's when, and here are the nuances, and, and it leads to such richer debates and conversations. So leaning into topics where, where your students have a chance to share their thoughts and their, their rationale and, and be able to learn from each other, I think that's one. The other is, I've never heard students say at the end of a course, I wish there had been more lecture. I wish the instructor had right. talked at us more. Like that has just never happened. Usually people say, oh man, I wish we had longer amount of time to work with our group on this thing. Or, oh, I wish we didn't have to end that breakout. Like we were still talking and it was awesome. Or, oh, I wish we had more time to meet people that were outside of our immediate, our immediate small groups or something. So it's usually something about meeting other people, meeting other students, working on a project or on an exercise, working to apply something they learned on their own business and thinking through how it applies for their own situation. It's usually something that is active and interactive. Mm. So avoiding this one directional, here we are, the staff or the instructor, the HQ, moderators, et cetera, talking at everyone, avoiding that and encouraging students to connect, to talk amongst themselves, to share, not jumping in right away to give the answer. I think the best community moderators and leaders they often do know the answer. Like when someone asks a question, it's like, yeah, they could jump in, right? Like, but they don't. They intentionally have self-restraint so that someone else can jump in. Someone else from the community can jump in and then they can encourage that behavior and celebrate it. And it creates this culture where people are 
constantly helping each other and feeling empowered. They feel agency to that they also own this community. They're not just here as a tourist, but they're really part of this. So that's the last piece. It's really empowering community members to connect with each other without you jumping in all the time to answer everything. Yeah, I love that. You did a great job of that in the course and the idea of driving debate, but on top of that, also creating a culture where the students feel comfortable giving each other really direct, candid feedback, even if it's not all positive feedback, really giving each other constructive feedback was really important. I think you did a good job of kind of setting the example and modeling it, like you said, of that behavior. And that was one of the most valuable things from that course was when I shared my doc on with instructions for how to participate in breakouts, people really went in there and tore it apart and challenged things that didn't feel specific enough and pushed the language farther and like so hard. That was probably the hardest part of the course was just getting feedback from other students. But the end result, the end product would be so good and so clear because everyone was really honest and direct with each other. It's not an easy culture to build. But when you do that, I feel like you end up building a much better community and people get a lot more value out of the program. Mm -hmm. I love that example. Yeah. That's awesome. All right. Awesome. Well, we are about ready for our rapid fire question round. All right. Rapid fire questions and answers. Wes, are you ready for the rapid fire question round? Yes. Yes. All right. First question is, if you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would that food be? Gosh. Probably zucchini. I really like vegetables. And I feel like... Zucchini. This is kind of a practical answer, but if I could only eat one thing, I'd want it to be something that was kind of healthy, but tasty. So vegetables in general, I would say. Zucchini. Yeah. Vegetables in general. All right. I'll allow it. It's a category, but you said zucchini first, which was kind of weird and I like it. (laughs) (laughs) What's your favorite way to prepare zucchini? I like cutting them. Okay. This is just going to reveal how much more weird I am. (laughs) So I like eating ingredients not dishes. So I will literally <laughs> like just eat zucchini. So I'll cut off the ends and then I'll chop them into little rounds and then chop them into little strips and then pan fry it. And it's super healthy. I think it tastes really good. It's so simple. I like eating like really simple things. So yeah, that's how I prepare it. I love it. You only eat deconstructed recipes. I love it. <laughs> and that doesn't surprise me about you. Well, thank you. I'll take that as a compliment. I think. It is a compliment. <laughs> What's your favorite book to give as a gift or recommend to others? Okay, this one is is also weird. It's an anger management book, Ooh. which is going to sound so weird. And, and some people, you know, I have to caveat it when I give it to people. <laughs> yeah, this isn't about you. <laughs> so they're not insulted. But like, I think they have issues. It's like gifting gum or deodorant or something. Exactly, yeah. Bar of soap. <laughs> but it's, it's called It's Not Personal. It's by Alice Katz. The book is called It's Not Personal. I think it's fantastic. I think that as a modern professional, as a leader manager, founder, there's a lot of things that can be frustrating. So like, I feel like a lot of people might benefit from reading about dealing with anger and like frustration. I love it. And like that book just, it's, I think it's fantastic. So it's something that I think most people wouldn't pick up on their own, which is why I like gifting it. I love that. And what a great book for every community builder to read because at some point a member is going to piss you off and you have to manage your emotions. Oh my God. Yes. Oh God. Right. Yes. Ideally, you get all of your members to read it too, but that might be harder. The other great thing about that book is it talks about managing your emotions, but it also talks about what to do if you're the recipient of anger. Right. And community managers deal with so much shit yeah. from so many people. Yeah. At some point, if not already and, and on a daily basis, you are the target of 
people's frustrations. And so how do you put up boundaries and kind of protect the, the soft spot in yourself to not get crumbled from that? So yeah, it's good. Absolutely. Awesome. We'll include a link to that in the show notes, as well as the other resources that you shared, your uh, course matrix thing with the levers. We'll, yep. we'll include the links to all that here too. Next question. What is your favorite course that you've ever been a part of? You've created a lot of courses and supported the creation of a lot of courses, but what about one that you've been a part of? Yes. One where I did not create it, but I was a student was Alive OS, Susie Batiz's course. Okay. It's about, how do I even describe it? Overcoming internal roadblocks. Cool. I think mindset. Yeah. It's a really good one. Love it. All right. Well, if she's still doing it, we'll include the link to that as well. Next question. What's a go-to engagement tactic or conversation starter that you like to use in your communities? When we start Maven Course Accelerator workshops, we always ask a fun question so that when people are coming in, we also play background music. So it's not just silent. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorite questions is, what are you currently binging on Netflix? Mm -hmm. And then the other is, what's your guilty pleasure food? Mm. Everyone loves talking about those two things. So those are fun ones. It'd be interesting to cross-reference that with my question of what's the one food you would eat <laughs> for the rest of your life? Would it be <laughs> the guilty pleasure food or a healthy food? I don't know. We'll have to analyze that data later. Okay, next question. Have you ever worn socks with sandals? Yes. My husband and I both do this and he calls it Birkensocks. <laughs> yes, Birkensocks. I think there's a whole community for Birkensocks members, which... yeah. That's good. Oh, great. I want to join that community. I am not literally a part of, but I should be. <laughs> Kindred spirits. Love me, me yeah. like-minded people. I do wear my socks <laughs> with my Berkies all the time. Next question. Who in the world of community would you most like to take out to lunch? Ooh, this one is hard. <laughs> Could be alive or dead too, by the way. Oh, okay. I'm going to say Mr. Rogers. Nice. I am a huge fan of Mr. Rogers. Wait, is he dead? Yeah. He did die recently. I'm pretty he? sure. I'm pretty sure. Um, <laughs> Is Mr. Rogers dead? Oh, no. I'm, I'm pretty sure. I had no idea. I think I had an idea. I think what he represents in terms of empathy and thinking about talking kids differently, thinking about masculinity differently. I actually read an amazing article about his internal rules for his showrunners and show writers hmm. on ways to talk to children and ways to use language precisely. I love that. I'm a big fan of using language accurately and precisely. And he has these like 10 rules about how to write and how to communicate to avoid miscommunication. That's incredible. Because with kids, they're still young. And yeah. if you say, oh, that thing blew up, right? But and you mean blew up as in like it grew really quickly or had a great response. Kids might not know that blew up means that. They might think that it's the literal meaning of something blowing up. So right, right. I love that he thinks so detailed about this. And I would love to meet other people who are equally obsessed with using language in such a precise way. I feel like we would just get along and have so much to talk about. I love that. That's such a good person to have lunch with. I agree. And I want to see those 10 rules. I'm going to look them up. Maybe if we can find them, we'll, we'll post that up, that article too. Yeah, yeah. Remind me and I'll send the article link. Yeah, we'll put that up in the show notes too. All right, a couple more. Uh, what's the weirdest community you've ever been a part of? A plant shaming group on Facebook. <laughs> one of my favorites. Oh, wait, I think I know about that one. Yeah, so if your plant dies... You post a photo and you shame it for dying. There's no shaming of the people. That's right. Yeah, it's about shaming the plants. Yeah, not shaming <laughs> the people, plants only. It's so much fun. Yeah, I actually have seen that one. And actually, I should probably go back in there because I have a few plants to shame right now. Mm. 
All right, last question. If you were to find yourself on your deathbed today and you had to condense all of your life lessons into one piece of advice for the rest of the world, what would that advice be? Worry less. Hmm. Why is that your advice? I remind myself of that all the time. As a worrier, (laughs) that's probably one of the biggest lessons I've learned over the years and still something that I actively remind myself of. And Hmm. I think I've done way better work since worrying less. It was actually a New Year's resolution three years ago to worry less. Hmm. And that's actually been my resolution since then. Like That's just it every year. And it's made a huge positive impact in my ability to do creative work, make decisions, et cetera, without the fraughtness and kind of dark cloud hanging over my head and and tying myself into a knot. That happens a lot if I don't remind myself not to worry. Hmm. Yeah, I like that. Reminds me of a a book my old friend wrote called Choose Wonder Over Worry by Amber Ray. I don't know if you ever heard of it, but... Yes, Amber Ray is a Seth Godin alum. That's right. She is. Yes. She worked with Seth before my time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's great. I love that. Exactly. Is there a practical technique that you've figured out? Is there one that you could share about reducing worry in your life? Yeah. One thing is, actually, this is something that I learned from Susie's course. She talks about choosing easy world. Mm. What would this look like if it were easy? Mm -hmm. And not easy as in like, oh, I'm doing the cop out thing that I'm going to regret later. But easy as in, what if this were simple and some the solution could be something that felt good, that I wanted to do, that was good for other people. Like kind of embracing that there is that solution out there and simplifying things to that. I call it simplifying first. You know, that's kind of my way of looking at it. And and the reason is sometimes I've, if you write a, fi- you could write a 500 word thing, but if that's eventually going to be a 50 word thing, like let's say a 500 word bio versus a 50 word bio. If you just thought for a moment, and realize that this should be 50 words, you're going to write it completely differently. Yeah. And my instinct sometimes is to think like, oh, like what if this is like this huge thing? Right. And I've trained myself over time to think, what is the smallest next step? What is the simplest version of this so that I'm not writing this 500 words and then trimming out 90% of it? I'm just going straight to whatever that simplest iteration is of this thing. Mm. And that usually reduces 90% of the worry and it's great. I love that. Great advice. All right. Well, we are at the end of our time here, Wes. This is an absolute pleasure. I've learned so much from you, from your course, from our conversations together. I'm a huge fan of yours and everything y'all building at Maven. Like I said, I highly recommend everyone check out Maven, check out the course that you built and check out Maven as a platform to host their courses because they're really, I can say with 100% confidence, there's nothing else out there that will teach you how to create courses like this program will. So appreciate you. Appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today. Last thing is, where can people go to find out more about you, continue to learn from you and and learn about Maven? Yeah. Maven's website is maven.com and at mavenhq on Twitter. And I'm at Wes underscore KO on Twitter. Awesome. Thank you, Wes. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. The Masters of Community is brought to you by CMX, the world's largest network of community professionals, and Bevy, the enterprise platform powering communities for the world's leading brands. This episode was edited and produced by Finesse Media. Music was provided by Seiji Cataldo, and design was provided by Virginia DeMarco. If you enjoyed this episode, please drop us a review in iTunes. It's a huge help for helping us get this podcast in front of more people. We really, really appreciate it. And share it with your networks. The more people that learn about the power of community, the better. We have a new episode every week. So until then, thank you so much for listening and see you next time.